Well, good morning and welcome to all of you and welcome to those of you joining us from Calvary Quakertown. It's exciting uh, to say that next week we will all be together in person. Calvary Quakertown will join us for our baptisms and so if you haven't seen those people for a while, I encourage you make sure you come and connect with the Calvary Quakertown people and you Calvary Quakertown people connect with the Souderton people as we join together next week. We're in a series that we're calling Connect. And if you remember, connect is one of our two values. Connect and impact are on both of the side walls here in Souderton, so you'll know. And there are two parts to connect, though. They're separate, but they're kind of interlocking. We connect with God, and then he sends us to connect with other people. And when we connect with God, he impacts us and changes us and then sends us to connect and impact other people. And so far in this series, we've kind of gone every other week looking at a connection with God from the scripture, and then one of those one another statements that should propel us to go and connect with others. And we've looked at lots of different connections in the Bible, and we've looked at a few one another passages. And this morning we come to maybe one of the most familiar passages in the Bible where God connects with someone. It's found in Isaiah 6, and that passage is God's connection with Isaiah. So if you have your Bibles or your phone or your iPad or whatever you use, turn to Isaiah chapter 6, and we're going to read that interaction, that connection, and we're going to see at the end how that connection with God propels Isaiah to go connect with people and impact follow. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along or just listen as I read. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. Now, I'm not sure if you've noticed as we work through uh, some of these connection with God that leads to connection with people passages. But one of the things that I've been reminded of um, through this series is that our thinking about change and transformation is a lot more superficial than the change and transformation the Bible presents. You know, if you were to go into, you know, a typical church, a typical Sunday school class, a small group, here's what you would think change is all about. Information and then discipline. So let's find out what the requirements are. Let's find out what the rules are and then discipline yourself to live out those rules. Isn't that right? Data plus duty equals the Christian life. But that's not what Christianity is. It's not data plus duty. In fact, we've been reminded in this series that it's 
that internal change, that connection with God that actually brings about the external change. And what sometimes we wrestle with is we want to take the one another stuff, that external stuff, and we want to make that the whole of the story. But there's the preceding connection with God piece, not just data, that connection with God that then leads to the internal change that then propels us to the one another's. And we're going to see that in crystal clear fashion this morning. Well, before we kind of work through at 30,000 feet what the passage is about, we need to say a word about the situation. Because the first thing that Isaiah writes is, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, that's really important. You may think, well, who the heck is Uzziah? Well, Uzziah was the king. Two important things you have to know about Uzziah. Number one, he became king when he was 16 years old. That's a frightening thought, right? I mean, think about this. When you're 16-year-olds driving out of the driveway, that's kind of scary, right? Imagine if your 16-year-old was put on the throne, not as a president, but as king. Talk about frightening, right? He becomes king when he's 16, And he reigns as king for 52 years. 52 years. I did a little math. 2021 minus 52 is 1969. Some of you weren't born in 1969. Some of you were old in 1969. Some of you remember 1969. And uh, before I do this next thing, I need to tell you, no cheering and jeering, all right? We've had 11 presidents from 1969 to the present. I'm going to read through the list. No cheering or jeering. Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden. Judah had one king in that same time frame. But that's not the most significant thing. Uzziah was a really good king. He was like a military genius. I mean, he trained lots of soldiers, and Judah actually became almost a world power. The enemies on the outside were defeated for like the first time. Judah is becoming, you know, a nation now to be reckoned with. He was a strategist. He was an economic wizard. He was an innovator. He invented lots of cool weaponry and stuff to keep them safe. And he was a spiritual guy. You know, he was interested in putting God first. Now, his life doesn't end real well. Kind of tries to take a place of a priest and kind of gets leprosy. But if you leave off that little caveat at the end, he was a really, really good king. All of a sudden, the king, who's a really competent, wise, good king, is dead. And he has ruled for 52 years. It's become familiar. The expectations are high. Judah is a force to be reckoned with. And now Uzziah is gone. Oh yeah. And on the back burner, Assyria is beginning to rise. So the king that was the military genius and protector and fortifier of Judah, he's now gone. And Assyria, the enemy, is beginning to rise and become more powerful. Before we uh, think about what happened to Isaiah, let me ask you a question. What do you do when the familiar and the certain is taken away? What happens in your life when 
the things that you're trusting and the things that are going well all of a sudden begin to evaporate. What do you do when your finances or cash flow drastically changes? What do you do when your health begins to go south? What do you do when your job is now very tenuous? What do you do when situations in your life are beginning to fall apart and you're wondering if the future isn't just going to allow you to thrive, is the future even going to allow you to survive? What do you do? Are you paralyzed with fear? Do you begin to uh, maneuver, right, and manipulate and try to, you know, coerce people and cause them to go the direction you want. You know what should happen, and so you begin to kind of work with them and change them and try to get things to go your way. Or do you um, become really religious, right, at least on the outside? You start reading your Bible faithfully, saying your prayers, because there are a bunch of things you need God to do. He needs to show up, and Lord, here's your marching orders for today and this week. And what do you do when your life begins to crumble and those things you've been trusting in that have brought you comfort and peace, prosperity, are gone. That's the situation that Isaiah's in. Well, what happens? Isaiah catches a glimpse of God. Um, a really weird thing happens, right? He goes to, the he goes to church and you know, he's a prophet, right? So he's probably gone to church. You know, he's gone to the temple dozens of times, probably hundreds of times. Oh, but this time is radically different. He goes to church and he connects with God there. Boy, what a radical thought. Um, you go to church and you actually connect with God. Um, how often does that happen for you? You've heard of uh, the expression, uh, sure, you, do, you watch baseball, but 162 games, very long, boring season. Um, have you ever heard an announcer say, oh, they're just going through the motions today? Uh, if you don't know what that is, just watch the Phillies many games, right? <laughs> they're just going through the motion. You don't run out the fly ball. You don't run out the infield uh, ball anymore. Uh, you're just going through the motions today. 162 times, all those. Um, you ever go through the motions like when you go to church? Oh, Sunday morning, got to do the drill. Thankfully, it's back to 9.30. And now we got to move it up a little bit. Oh, we're meeting outside next week. But you just kind of check the box. God didn't send his son to come to earth, die on a cross, rise from the dead for us to go through the motions. God didn't go through all that so um, we can run programs. God didn't do all that so we can have meetings. God didn't do all that so we can gather together and sing songs and listen to a sermon. God did all that so we have access and we can connect with him. Here's a, what Isaiah writes based on his connection with God in Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, when all of life, all hell's breaking loose in his life, I saw the Lord high and exalted seated on a throne in a train of, and, and the robe filled the temple. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Uh, can I be Captain Obvious for a second here? You say, Charles, you usually are Captain Obvious right now. King Uzziah was a really competent king. He had been on the throne for 52 years. All of life's beginning to fall apart. 
What does Isaiah need? He needs to catch a glimpse of the eternal king who doesn't rule for 52 years. He rules from all eternity to all eternity. And he's not just competent. He's omniscient, omnipotent, and all those other omni words, right? He is the ultimate. That's what Isaiah needs. That's what we need. You ever look around and, you know, watch the news or go online and check things? You ever feel like things are falling apart? Things that are familiar to you, things that maybe you've trusted in, and it's all evaporating. It's a, what, what do we need? We need to catch a glimpse of the throne that has always and will always be occupied. And it's not in D.C. It's not in some other national capital in the world. It's in heaven. And the one who sits on the throne is God. I was reminded of a story that we, uh, and the same idea we uh, kind of wrestle with. A pastor friend of mine years ago, he was, uh, he was preaching on hell, not a happy topic. He's preaching on hell. And uh, after the service, he was standing in the back, and, and this woman came up to him, and she said, uh, Pastor, my God would never send anybody to hell. So he thought for a minute, and he said, you know what? You're absolutely right. But your God is a figment of your imagination. I was talking about the creator God who's described in the Bible. You're free to create any kind of God you want, but the only God that's real has disclosed himself to us in the Bible. You were thinking about your God. I was talking about the only God. You ever wrestle with that? You ever have that, you know, statement formulating on your life? Well, my God, we all, how, how closely does your God line up with the real God? That's kind of the big question, right? Isaiah meets the real God, right? And all of a sudden, everything changes for him. And you got these uh, seraphim, right, flying around, these angelic beings, these glorious creatures. And if you read through the rest of the Bible, when human beings um, are in the presence of an angel, often they're tempted to worship. Do you ever notice that? Like, and the angel's like, no, 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 get up. I'm a creative being just like you. You're not allowed to worship me now. And they pull them up. These angelic beings are crying, holy, holy, holy to the one seated on the throne. And it's really important to think about what they're doing with their wings. You ever hear that? With two wings, they're covering their eyes because God is so glorious that these angelic beings can't even look at him. Just like we can't stare into a bright sun, they can't even look at God. Two wings, they cover their feet, just like Moses, right? You're standing in the presence of holiness. Take off your sandals. You've got dirty feet. And with two wings, they're flying, ready, waiting to do God's bidding and serve him in whatever he wants done. That's a pretty good model for us, right? Recognizing who God is, too glorious to look at. Recognizing something about ourselves, we've got to cover our shame from his presence because we're unfit to be there and with two ready to serve in whatever he calls us and sends us to do. And then you've got that whole holy thing, right? Holy, holy, holy. Um, back in, you know, in the ancient world, they didn't have italicized type or bold print or all caps, right? The way you do uh, Twitter or Instagram stuff today for sending an email. So they would repeat things that they wanted to emphasize. And uh, you can check me out on this. Um, there is only one description of God that gets the three times name, and that's holy. God's holy, holy. That's for emphasis. That's bold print. That's italicized, right? That's all caps. 
Holy, holy, holy. Now, what does that mean? Well, holy, we've talked about this. Holiness is kind of this, this weird push and pull kind of thing, right? Um, when you're in the presence of holiness, there's an attraction to that. You wanna, you're in the presence of greatness. You want to kind of be there, and you're kind of pulled in. But at the same time, holiness is threatening. You want to get away. So let me ask you a few questions. Do you want your picture taken next to the most beautiful model in the world? Heck no, right? We don't, we don't get our picture taken with somebody who's less than mediocre, right? Because we'll look a little better. Do you want to walk onto the court or up to the table or onto the field with like, after a world-class Olympian has just competed? Of course not, right? Do you want to go up to the boardwalk, you know, where you throw the ball and you get to throw like 45, 50 miles an hour, right after Wheeler has thrown 101 at the same thing? No. See, holy, when you're in the presence of greatness, there's an attraction. I can't believe he can do that, right? But then there's also, but I don't want to, I, I can't do that. I want to be far away from him. There's an attraction and a threat at the same time. That's the angels, right? They're covering their faces. They, they're threatened. And yet at the same time, they can't leave his presence. That's holiness. Have you been there? How recently have you been there? Well, the last time you've been there is probably the last time you connected with God. Because remember, connecting with God is not data plus duty. Connecting with God is catching a glimpse of who he really is. We describe worship that way. Here's how we define worship. Worship, in our understanding of Calvary Church, is seeing God accurately and responding appropriately. Catching a glimpse of who he is, and then the response comes naturally. Well, it isn't just God. Isaiah then immediately moves the focus to himself. Because when he sees God, he immediately recognizes a few things about himself, and they're not good. Here's what it says. Here's what it, there it is. Woe to me, right? That, that's, that's a cry of agony. I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He catches a glimpse of God, and immediately he catches a glimpse of himself. You know, it's always that way. You cannot understand yourself unless you understand something about God. And here's a really weird thing. And you cannot understand all you need to know about God until you understand something about yourself. There's almost like this cycle of knowing that we run through our whole lives, right? Knowing God leads to knowing yourself a little better. Knowing yourself leads to knowing God a little better. And you run around that cycle. That's what the process of Christian growth is, right? Connecting with God, then you're able to see some things about yourself and you go back to God. And some of you think, wait a minute, wait a minute. How in the world, by catching a glimpse of me, can I understand something about God? All right, uh, phrase it like this. I posit that Adam and Eve knew some things about God better after the fall than before the fall. Now, again, before the fall, they could see more clearly, right? Sin's not distorting their view, right? Their fallen nature isn't kind of messing up things. Oh, yeah. But after the fall, they now knew God as Savior. They couldn't have known God as Savior before they needed saving. They couldn't have known God as forgiver until they needed forgiving. And so 
Knowing who God is, we're made in his image. You have to know God to know something about yourself. But then in knowing yourself, you learn more about God. And we need to run around that cycle. Yeah, but it isn't just knowing ourselves. It's knowing that, yeah, we're kind of a mess, right? I always find this weird, right? Isaiah's a prophet. That means he kind of preaches for a living, right? Um, he talks. He speaks for God, and he kind of, you know, he kind of interprets what God says. The people say back and forth. What does he pick out to describe as being filthy? His mouth. Like, does that mean he was like a cursing prophet? I don't think so. Here's what he's saying. Like, I'm a prophet. My best gift is talking. What does that mean? My best shot will condemn me forever. If our best gift is unworthy before God, what does that say about our worst stuff? Isaiah will say uh, again in his book, my, all of my righteousness is it's like filthy rags before God. Notice it doesn't say your worst sins are like filthy rags. Your best acts are filthy rags before God. Wow. Well, then what happens? Now, now we got the setup, right? He, he catches a glimpse of God. My guess is he's kind of doing what the angels are doing, right? He's kind of recognizes his, his sin, how deep it is. He's covering his eyes. And, and then he sees that. He's recognizing this distance. And then one of the angels goes over to the altar, right, where the stuff was burning, uses tongs because coals are hot, and the angel picks up a coal with the tongs, flies over, and touches Isaiah's mouth with it. How many of you have ever bitten into a slice of pizza with molten mozzarella when it wasn't cool, right? Your mouth hurts for the next week, right? Okay, you think that's bad? Try chewing on a live coal this afternoon, right? Yeah, chew on that for a day. My guess is you, maybe somebody will like you. won't be able to talk for a while. Um, think about that. Isaiah's probably thinking, what? I'm in agony, and the angel comes and puts a live coal in my mouth. What? You know what that's symbolic of? There is pain involved in this connection with God. We know that better as a confession and repentance. There's a little bit of a sting to those things, for folks, right? Um, when you not only admit, but own your failures, your faults, there's a sting to that. We will almost do anything rather than admit and own our failures, wouldn't we? It's always somebody else's fault. Oh, yeah, but circumstances did this. No, no, no. The sting is, I did it, I said it, I felt it, I rebelled against it, I own it. You know, unless you admit and own what the failure is, you can never get to a solution, right? Every um, addiction program I know of begins with admission. You've got to begin, you have, a, you have to admit you have a problem before you're ever going to get to a solution, before you ever go under surgery in order to get the tumor room, you have to admit you have a tumor. In order to get rid of this, if you have a tooth that's bad, in order to admit, in order to get it fixed, you have to admit you need something done with the tooth. But there's pain in confession. There's pain in that repentance. But God comes once the admission is made, and he heals. The live coal isn't meant 
to torture and cause pain, the live coal brings healing. And that reminds us, uh, where'd the live coal come from again? Where'd it come from? Yeah. What's the altar? Well, the altar is the place where atonement's made, right? The altar is the place where innocent blood is spilt. The altar is the place where the innocent pay for the guilty's sin, and the guilty are then forgiven, and the innocent pay the price. That's what an altar is. You know, and if you want to remember why we uh, gather together, uh, let, let me remind you, we don't gather together on Sunday to sing songs together, primarily. We don't gather together to listen to messages. We gather together to be reminded. To be reminded of who God is, to be reminded of who we are. To be reminded of a gracious, loving God who provides for us to be forgiven and to have an opportunity to confess and repent. We gather together to remember all that. We gather together to remember the altar, but not the altar in a temple in Jerusalem, an altar right outside Jerusalem, a little hill where there was a cross, and it was there that the innocent paid the price for the guilty, and the guilty can have their sins atoned for because of the innocent dying on the altar. That's what we remember. That's why we gather. Well, what comes after the grace? You know, grace is not the end of the story. I mean, if you were to talk to most Christians, oh, yeah, I got, I got to catch a glimpse of God, catch a glimpse of God, confess my sin, experience God's grace, period. The end. No, 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 no. That's not the end. What comes after that? After that comes the impact piece, right? God then asks a question. Not really a rhetorical question because Isaiah answers. And God says, hmm, now uh, who will go? Who will go for me? Who will explain this good news? Who's going to go? I can't think of anybody. And Isaiah very sheepishly, if you could use a miserable, ungifted, not very faithful servant like me, I'd be happy to go if you would accept me. And the rest of the chapter lays out what Isaiah is commissioned to do. Go and preach, but nobody's going to listen. Go out and live this message, but nobody's going to care. That doesn't matter. Isaiah's got to be faithful to the mission. He's not responsible for the response that others give. He's responsible for his response. Now, I, I find it very interesting that this is Isaiah's call to ministry, right? This is his call to being a prophet. Why is it in chapter 6? Like most of the other prophets, their calls are in the beginning, right? Read Jeremiah. It happens in the first chapter. Why does Isaiah's call come after five chapters? Like Isaiah put this up front. That way we can understand all what's happening. Oh, no, it makes perfect sense. Here's why Isaiah's call comes in chapter 6. Because God is giving Isaiah a paradigm. You see, there's a question. You read the first five chapters today, and you tell them. I, the first five chapters of Isaiah give us a question. And here's the question. How can this rebellious, obstinate, sinful, wicked people ever become 
a community of God that takes my message of grace to the world. How can this rebellious, wretched people ever become that community that takes my place? And then in chapter 6, God takes Isaiah through a paradigm. Seeing God leads to seeing yourself. Seeing yourself leads to seeing your sin. Seeing your sin leads to seeing God's grace. Seeing and experiencing God's grace leads to obedience and service. Isaiah, the answer to the question of the first five chapters is, anyone that goes through this process, this paradigm, is now a member of the community of God that has experienced and will go to connect and impact others. Isaiah, what I took you through must be what Israel, Judah, goes through. And the same is true for us today. How are we going to connect and impact people? Same process. you got to see God. And when you catch a glimpse of God, take an honest, hard look at yourself. And when you look at yourself, admit and own your problem, your sin. And then you're in a position to experience and see God's grace. And when you see his grace and experience, then and only then are you propelled to obedience and service. It's when you experience that that you become someone who can continue what Jesus started. The paradigm runs from Genesis through Revelation. Isaiah 6 is kind of like a roadmap, a really good example, kind of like the GPS of how to connect with God. It's not just data plus duty. It's catching a glimpse of who God is. Then seeing yourself, admitting and owning your problem, experiencing God's grace, and then being sent to impact others with that message we call the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this passage that is a paradigm, a paradigm that was real for Isaiah, a paradigm that you called Judah to go through, and a paradigm that is still true for us today. Lord, I pray that you wouldn't allow us to settle for that data plus duty message that so, is so prevalent today. Help us to realize connection with you is a whole lot more than putting some data or information into our brain. It's catching a glimpse of who you are in our heads and in our hearts and allowing that internal transformation to become external as we live out its reality. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.